Please take your Bible and turn to Ruth chapter 1. We're through this month of February, four weeks of February, four Sundays. We're going to look at each of the four chapters of the book of Ruth. And then as we finish Ruth chapter 4, we begin in March, continuing God's great love story. And we will begin in the book of Genesis and springboarding out of the love story we find here in Ruth. And, and beginning in Genesis, looking, looking at Adam and going all the way through Abraham and Moses, ultimately to the fulfillment of God's great love story on Easter Sunday, Good Friday service at Easter Sunday for the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I hope that you will make it a priority to be at at every service and every sermon uh, leading up to Easter Sunday as we all together, we, we look at God's Word and we, we begin to look at that scarlet thread that's found throughout the whole Bible. Let's begin this love story with a woman named Ruth. Ruth was a Gentile. She was a Moabite. We meet her in this story. She is a pagan living in a pagan country. She's living in darkness. She's living in idolatry. She lives in the land of Moab. But at the end of the story, what we see is that she partakes in God's great love story. And God has a special plan and purpose for this woman, Ruth. And while she begins as a Gentile idolater, what we will see at the end of the story at Ruth chapter 4 is how God uses this woman, draws her close to him, and she becomes a part of the story, the great love story of Jesus Christ. Please stand in the honor of reading God's word, Ruth chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse number 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab, and there they remained. Father, as we look at this first chapter of this wonderful book of Ruth, Father, I ask that you will speak to our heart and life, open our hearts, open our spirits so that we can hear a word from you. We want to be in your presence and we want to hear your word, not only proclaimed, but also uh, placed in our heart and life. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, please be seated. In any great story, in any great uh, narrative, there are different scenes, there are different movements. And what we find here in Ruth chapter 1 are basically three scenes of, of this great love story beginning to unfold. The first scene of Ruth chapter 1 begins with a disobedient family. Uh, Ruth 1 describes a disobedient family. We're told here in Ruth 1, uh, chapter 1, the story of Ruth takes place on the backdrop of the dark days of the judges. This was a dark time in the nation of Israel. This was a time where as you read the book of Judges, you, you see a phrase that comes again over and over and over again that, that the people of God did what was evil in the sight of God. And so God brought forth a judge to, to judge them. And then we see the mercy of God. God places his hand on the nation of Israel. He forgives them. He, he sets them back on the right trajectory. And then again, we see that verse again that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of God. And we see this play out. 
from the very first judge whose name was Othniel. He was a good judge, a godly judge, a judge that, that loved the Lord God. And he, he held the things of God above and paramount to anything else that transpired in life. And then we see a, 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 uh, destruction of, of morality even among the judges from Othniel all the way to the final judge who was Samson. And when we come to Samson, the final judge that judged Israel, we find a man who had no desire to know God. He had, uh, he, he, he played Russian roulette with his life, even though God blessed him and, and used him in a powerful way. But still yet, we see this dark time, this political anarchy, this time of judgment. You would have thought, though, that the children of Israel, who uh, just a few years earlier had escaped bondage, they, they had occupied the, 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 the land that was flowing with milk and honey, you would think that this generation of, of, of Hebrew children, this generation of Jews, they would have remained faithful to God because they were so connected to the Exodus and so connected to the 40 years of wandering in the desert and then ultimately with Joshua leading them in to the land of promise. But yet what we find in the period of the judges is that people did what was right in their own eyes. They rebelled against God. They opposed one another. They opposed God and they were violent and they were uh, brutal from without. The scripture says in the time of the judges... That every man did what was right in his own eyes. That sounds like present-day America, doesn't it? We do what we want to do. We do our own thing. Every man chooses his own path. And yet, when man does his worst, that's when God does his best. And in the darkness of these times, in the days of the judges, there was this little family. There was this little family in this little village, this little village called Bethlehem. This little insignificant family from this little insignificant town outside of Jerusalem. And it seemed as if their life was just going on as, as life does. But yet God's hand was upon this little family. God's hand was upon them and He began to work His sovereign purpose through their life and, and through the, uh, the events that began to transpire. And so we come to the book of Ruth. Let's meet the main characters. We've read about him. First of all, the man of the house, the husband, the father. His name is Elimelech. The Hebrew name Elimelech means my God is king. So when Elimelech's parents named Elimelech his name, they obviously believed in God. They believed in Jehovah, Yahweh God, and, and they named him that his God is king. My God is king. That's what Elimelech means. He married a beautiful woman named Naomi. Naomi, the name Naomi means pleasant, means beautiful. And certainly she would have lived up to that name. They had two sons. Uh, their, their, their names were Malon and Chilion. The way I remember that is you eat chili, you need Malox. And so don't say you didn't learn anything in church, all right? <clears throat> These two sons, Chilion and, and Malon. Now I'm going to say Chilion and Malox all service. I know I'm going to. Malon and Chilion, they were a bleeding family. They, they lived in the land of promise. They lived in this town of Bethlehem, this little uh, Bedouin community. The, 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 the word Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem is Hebrew for the house of bread. And so here is Elimelech, whose name means my God is king. 
Here is his wife, Naomi, who means beautiful or pleasant, and they live in the house of bread. It's the place of of substance, the place that, that God will provide. And ultimately, we know what happens in Bethlehem, right? Several thousand years after this, not only does God provide for Ruth in this story, but fast forward past Ruth and we see that Bethlehem, the the house of bread, that is also the place that God provided for us a Savior in Jesus Christ who was born in that stable in Bethlehem. That was no coincidence. I believe that this is the sovereignty of God. But something happened in these days. Here's this family, this Jewish family that that loved the Lord. And the Bible says that a famine came over the land. A famine came on the land because of, of a judgment of God. God was bringing judgment on the promised land because of how the people were living. And so when the famine came, Elimelech made a poor decision. He made a poor choice. He made a choice to go outside the will of God. He made a choice to move his family from Bethlehem to Moab. Now you say, what's wrong with moving to Moab? Well, first of all, there is no evidence that Elimelech ever even gave a thought of praying about moving. In fact, the Hebrew, the way the Hebrew is written, it it, it says that because of the famine, Elimelech moved his family to Moab. This wasn't a, a, a time where Elimelech was praying and fasting and saying, is this the right move for me? Is this the right move for my family? Is this where we should go? There's no evidence that he ever sought the will of God re, regarding this move. But simply because of a physical famine, because he was afraid, he, he ran for his life and he took his family with him. He, he moved to Moab. It was a carnal decision based upon physical needs and, and physical wants rather than a spiritual choice. Now understand this about the Moabites. The Moabites were cursed under Israeli law. The Moabites were cursed. They were idol worshipers. They they worshiped the god Molech. And in fact, when you travel to Israel, and we're going in just a few, uh, just uh, in a month's time, we're going to be going to Israel. When you stand at the, the, the foundation of Mount Carmel, they have uncovered the, the idols that the Moabites would worship there at the base of Mount Carmel. And you can see these idols that, that, that Ruth and her family would have worshipped, these ancient ruins. The family, they moved out of the will of God and they moved to Moab. In the scripture, Moab, the, the word Moab, it means a wash pot. Now, we don't have wash pots in, in, in uh, our culture today. A wash pot is basically a garbage can. And so here's the story. Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, his wife's name means pleasant and beautiful. They leave the house of bread, the house of substance, the, 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 the place that God is, and he moves his family without ever discerning the will of God and what God would have for them, and he moves them from the house of bread, and he moves them to the garbage can, the trash can, the wash pot, Moab. Now, when adversity comes, when troubles come, it seems that we often run. And when we begin to run, we begin to miss the very thing that God is wanting to do through that situation and circumstance. So often when a famine comes in our life, so often when storms come in our life, our our first reaction is to hit the ground and run away from it. To, to, to go wherever it is, but to get away from that problem, to get away from that situation, to get away from that circumstance. 
That's what Elimelech did. But as we're going to see through this story, a, a better alternative is instead of running away, look and see what God would have to do in our lives through that situation. And Elimelech, he moved himself and his family trying to run away from the problems. You realize that you can't run away from your problems, right? You realize that you can run your whole life and never run away from your past. You can never run away from your problems. He thought his problem was the famine in the land. But the real problem was the famine that was in his heart. There was a restlessness. There was an emptiness in his own soul, in his spirit. Elimelech, though he was a believer, carnally he chose to take God off the throne of his life and to go his own way. That's the basic definition of sin, isn't it? To remove God from the throne of our life and to put ourselves there. That's what sin is. That's how sin begins. And, and we, so we see Elimelech moving God off the throne. My God is king. And he, he, he even goes against what his very name means. And he puts himself on the throne. And, and he begins to examine what is it that I want and I need. He went his own way. Often we think, if I can just go somewhere, if I can just go somewhere other than where I am, I'll be happy. If I could just move over here, then I could be happy. If, if I could get that bump, that, that raise, or that, that next step at work, then I'll be happy. If, if I could just get out of debt, then I could be happy. If I can just make this one, or I can do this, or I can date this person, or marry this person, or have this, or have that. And, and we're always looking at, at, if I could just see this over here, our mind is that the grass is always greener on the other side, but that's not true. You're never going to be happy over there until you're satisfied right here. That which happens out here is never going to provide fulfillment for that which begins, must begin right here in our own heart within. Now, you may be thinking, Pastor, why are you so hard on this man? I mean, here's a man who is struggling to make ends meet. The, the famine is, is true. He <clears throat> is wanting to support his wife. He, he's wanting to support his, his sons. And, and all he's doing is, is he's wanting to take care of his family. Well, listen, a man should take care of his family. A man should provide for his family. A man should provide for his family, but not at the expense of his family. A man should provide, but not at the expense of his family. One of the devil's oldest lies is to say that God's not going to take care of you. That you need to take, you need to take control of your own life. That's one of, of Satan's oldest lies, isn't it? You better take care of you and your family alone because obviously God doesn't care about you. The oldest lie of the enemy. And yet the believer David, at the end of his life in Psalm 37, 25, he, he said, I've been young and now I'm old. And yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken nor his descendants begging for bread. You know, God's going to take care of you. Wherever you find yourself in life, the, the, when turmoil happens, when, when spiritual famines or physical famines happen, don't take that first reaction of running. Don't listen to the lie of Satan where Satan is going to say, you need to do something yourself. You, you need to go in and, and take care of business. You need to do this. No, don't listen to that. You listen to God. Wait on Him. Trust in Him. The safest 
most secure place in your walk, no matter where you find yourself, is in the middle of the will of God. When you get outside the will of God, you're going to get into trouble. The most dangerous place in the world is outside the will of God, outside of what God has assigned for us. Verse 4 tells us these boys, Malon and Chilion, they took wives of the women of Moab. One of their names was Orpah. The other was Ruth. Now get the picture. Here's these boys from this believing family. Elimelech and Naomi, they moved their sons to Moab and, and the boys, they, they began to, to date other women and, and, and they, they fall in love and they marry these unbelieving wives. They were unequally yoked. They married outside the faith. They married unbelieving women. Well, what happened? Well, as they lived in the land of Moab in disobedience, the Bible says that all of the men died. Verse, verses 4 and 5 say Elimelech died, and then verse 5 says that his two sons, Chilion and Malon, they died. Now here's the scene. Now you have three weeping women. These, these widows standing over the graves of their, their husbands who have passed. Isn't it ironic? Isn't it ironic that Elimelech moved his family from Bethlehem to go into Moab for the sole purpose for his family to flourish, but what he wanted didn't happen? He was seeking satisfaction, but what he found, well, he wound up with was dying and his body being buried in a foreign land. A disobedient family. And yet, in spite of their disobedience, we see God sovereignly working. We see God moving and pursuing this family. And so as we shift from a disobedient family, scene one, we now shift to scene two, which is we see a disillusioned faith. Look at verse six with me. Then she, meaning Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. By now, Naomi's a different woman. Her faith remains. Her faith isn't strong. Her faith is shaken, but, but still yet her faith remains, but she's disillusioned. She's, she's disappointed. In fact, she decides to change her name. Her name, which, which means beauty, Naomi, her, her, her name now is changed. Pleasant Naomi, optimistic Na- uh, Naomi, Mary Naomi. Spent all these years in, in Moab, and when she returns, when she walks back into Bethlehem through the city gate, she, she walks into Bethlehem, and the women begin to say, this is ten years removed. Verse 4 tells us they lived in Moab for ten years. So she comes back from Moab, and the women say, is that Naomi? Verse 20, is, is this Naomi? And Naomi said, don't call me pleasant. She said, call me, my name is Mara. Mara means bitter. So she said, I'm no longer pleasant. I'm no longer in the will of God. Call me Mara, for I am bitter. Life has been harsh. Life has been cruel. Her husband is dead. Her two sons are dead. You see, it was only supposed to be a short trip. The, the, the judges, it, it was, it was very fast when the plague came and, and then God would institute a judge and, and he would bring peace back to the land. It, it was only supposed to be for a short time, a short stint in Moab. Elimelech said, we'll just go down there and we'll, we'll get our life together. We'll make a little money, then we'll come back home. 
But you see, those days turn into months. Those months turn into years. And as we said, verse 4 tells us it was 10 years they lived in Moab. Naomi is now broken. She is bitter. She is backslidden. Her countenance has changed. Her joy is gone. She, she returns stumbling. She returns empty, a huge void in her heart. In fact, she said, I left full. I come back empty. Life can be harsh. Life can be bitter, can it? The cruel realities and the tough blows of life can make us all bitter. There's pain, there's, there's sorrow, there's grief in this world. You know, there's, there's so many that's bitter and broken. There's so many who are bitter and broken who are here today. And I'm not just talking about unbelievers, I'm talking about believers. Did you know that you can be a follower of Christ and be bitter? Be broken? Be backslidden? Perhaps you have lived a long time in Moab. Maybe maybe something or someone or some circumstance, a decision that you made forced you out of the will of God and, and you've been wandering in, in, in this garbage can of life in Moab for many years. You, you've lived in confusion for so long. You've lived without God being your king so long that your life is beginning to fall apart. You've become disillusioned. Naomi was disillusioned. She was disappointed. She expresses her anguish. She expresses her hurt. Naomi's in deep depression and it's shrouding her life. Her, her life has taken a terrible, drastic turn. It wasn't supposed to be like this. This is not how my life was supposed to turn out. I wasn't supposed to be widowed at, at, at 40 or 50 years old. This was not supposed to happen. And she begins to lose all perspective and she becomes very bitter. She said, in fact, she said, God has dealt harshly with me. So who did she blame her problems on? She blames her problems on God. She said, God has done this to me. It wasn't, it wasn't my husband's fault. It wasn't my fault for, for going. It was, it's God's fault. You know, when we become bitter, we feel like life is unjust and unfair. We begin to pass judgment, begin to pass blame. It's always somebody else's fault. It's my parents' fault for, for how I am. It's my teacher's fault. It's my, my ex's fault. It's, it, it's, it's someone else's fault. It's, it's God's fault. We always like to pass the buck. We always like to, 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 to spread the blame out when the reality is most of the stuff that have happened to us is not somebody else's fault. It's our own fault. It's our own sin. You may have had some bad parents, but your bad parents didn't make you. They're not culpable for the decisions that you made in life. Your ex may be the worst person in the world, but he or she did not make you do what you did. We're all culpable for our own decisions. Naomi was living in this state of mind, passing the blame, passing the buck. But you know, despite all of this, there was still a measure of faith that we see in Naomi's life. Faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say. She says, I, I am going back to Bethlehem. I'll return back to Bethlehem. Remember what we said Bethlehem represented. It represents the promises of God. 
And so when she said, when she said I, I will return back to Bethlehem, within her welled up, welled up a, a, a measure of faith to where she was going to be able to stand on the promise of God. Though she was still blaming God for all of the problems, she turned her eyes, the Hebrew says she turned her eyes to Bethlehem and began to proceed forward. There's a measure of truth for every believer in that statement. So often life deals blows and life hurts. Sin begins to set in. Unconfessed sin then leads to a a habitual sin. And I don't know who I'm speaking to this morning, but there are some in this room that, that you have departed the will of God. You have left the will of God and you are living in sin, unconfessed sin. And first of all, God's not going to bless you as long as you live in unconfessed sin. And second of all, as long as you're living in that sin, you're going to be living outside of the will of God. You say, well, how do I fix this? How do I remedy this? How how do I get back into the will of God? You do exactly what Naomi did you realize that living in the trash can is no fun. That living in the trash can, living in in the filth of this world, while it may be pleasurable, while it may bring instant gratification, it does not fill the voids that's in our heart. And just as the Bible said, Naomi pointed her eyes to Bethlehem. That's what you and I must do. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why should I just look at a city? No, 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 listen. It's much more than a city. Remember what we said Bethlehem represents. Bethlehem represents the promise of God. And ultimately, we know on this side of the story that that God sent His greatest promise. God sent the fulfillment of His great love story, Jesus Christ, to Bethlehem. So that's why I say, if you find yourself living in Moab this morning... You find yourself outside of the will of God this morning. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Turn your eyes to Him. He is the ultimate promise and He will bring you back. He will forgive you. He will right the wrongs. He will wash you clean. And He will set your feet upon the solid rock and place you back into the center of God's will. Return to Him. The final scene is that of a dedicated follower. A dedicated follower. Look at verse 8 with me. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. She said, Your husbands are dead. I'm going to Bethlehem. You return back. Verse 9. The Lord grant you that you find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go uh, with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? You see, Naomi is so backslidden. Naomi is so bitter that rather than wanting her daughters-in-law to come to the promise of God, she sends them back into the world. She's so blinded by the world that, that she said, it would be better for you just to stay here, to stay in the world. Don't follow after me. There's a whole sermon right here. 
one of the biggest problems for Christians who are living outside of the will of God, who have backslidden, the biggest problem, one of the biggest problems with individuals who find themselves in that is that you are a terrible, terrible, terrible witness for Jesus Christ. Because you're not living in the will of God, you are so blinded by the world that you tell people, hey, just live it up. Live like the world. You don't have any foot to stand on, do you? You can't say follow Jesus because you're not following Jesus. You can't say walk the way I'm walking because you're not walking in the path that God has set before you. And so Naomi, here's this back... This backslider, and we see this so evident in, in, in our lives at times. Turn back, don't go with me. Verses 12 and 14, we, we see an account, Orpah, her, uh, one of her daughters-in-law, she begins to get emotional. She cries, she, she grabs a hold of, of Naomi, she says, I want to go with you. And Naomi said, no, go back, and so that's what she did. Orpah returned back to her idolatry, her unbelief and judgment. And Orpah passes through the the pages of history never to be heard from again. But Ruth, the Bible says in verse 14, she clung to Naomi. She grabbed a hold of Naomi. And she implored me, I want to go with you. I want to go with you. And she said this this great and powerful confession of faith. We, We say it at funerals and weddings all the time. Verses 16 and 17, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. That's a strong commitment. And we need that kind of commitment today. We need people committed like that today. Everyone needs somebody in their life who, like Ruth, will say that no matter what, when you grow old, I'll grow old with you. If you grow old and you get wrinkles, I'll be there to get wrinkles with you. When everything just falls down, I'll be there to fall down with you. Everybody needs that. Our homes need that. Our families need that. Our churches need that. That's one thing, that word commitment, that... We don't hear very often anymore. People are not committed to anything. They're not committed to family. They're not committed to marriage. People aren't committed to their kids. People aren't committed to church. And this is, this is Ruth. We see Ruth in this, 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 this heart of commitment. She said, your people will be my people. This is a public confession. She was persuaded by faith. She said, your God will be my God. This is a personal faith, a, a possessive faith. A personal confession. It was a, a public confession. Then she said, I will live with you and I will die for you. That's a persevering faith. She leaves her past. She, she leaves her family. She leaves her culture. She, she says, I will go with you, Naomi, wherever you go. And there's a whole nother sermon tied up in the faith of Ruth. As we look at Ruth chapter one, we, we really see four types of faith that Ruth experienced. Personal faith, possessive faith, a public faith, and a persevering faith. She had a, a, a personal faith. It was hers, a possessive faith. She, she owned it. It was a public faith. She, she announced it, and then there was a persevering faith. It, it continued on. It wasn't just a decision that she made, and then she went back to what she was doing. You say, well, that sounds awful familiar, Pastor. A personal faith, a possessive faith, a, 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 a public faith, a persevering faith. That, that sounds familiar. 
It sounds a whole lot like salvation, doesn't it? That's what salvation is. You see, everybody comes to a crossroad in life. Orpah came to that crossroad. And she had very big emotions. She had an emotional meltdown. But yet she, she came to that crossroads and she chose for herself to return back and live in the garbage dump in the world. Ruth, on the other hand, came to the same crossroads that, that, that uh, Orpah came to. And she humbled her heart and she embraced faith. She embraced it personally. Today, I submit to you that every one of us come to this same crossroads. Some of us come to this crossroad as an unbeliever. You have the option, the opportunity today to receive Christ as Savior and Lord. Or you can turn your back on Him and walk away. You come to this crossroad as a believer. God is convicting some right now for unconfessed sin in your life. You're standing at a crossroad. You can confess that sin, repent of that sin. Or you can turn your back and you can walk back to the world. It's personal. It's possessive. It should be public. And on this road to Bethlehem, as we walk toward, as we look toward uh, this great love story, we see that Jesus is the ultimate answer. He is the ultimate redeemer. For you see, Ruth, as we'll see in the story, she meets a man when she returns to Bethlehem by the name of Boaz. They have a baby. That baby has a baby. That baby has a baby. That, and that baby is King David. David, who was born in Bethlehem, and ultimately we know through the lineage, through the lineage, Jesus Christ. Sometimes it takes a famine, it takes a funeral in the world, in Moab to bring us to the place that God can use us.